now. All right. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 14, the whole chapter. You ready? Here we go. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elasar, Kedarlaomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedarlaomar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedarlaomar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedarlaomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre in Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Anner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing 
but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Nick passed his test. Yeah, well done, Nick. We were, uh, that's probably the hardest reading we've ever done here at Bethany Church. We uh, were decided, Nick and I were debating this morning, is it Ketter Leomer or Cheddar Leomer? We like Cheddar better, but I don't think it's Cheddar, it's Ketter. So we're going to stick with Ketter Leomer today. And I'm not going to, I'm actually not going to even say any of the names today. I don't need to. He said them all, so I'm not going to even try that. Um, Yeah, so it's, uh, you know what I was thinking though, as, as Nick read that, and you might be thinking, why are we reading this out loud? Um, you know, really what I, what I come up here and do after the word of the Lord is read is really an afterthought. The reading of the word of the Lord is the most powerful thing we can do, to read it and hear it. And you know what's really uh, incredible? By the time we finish Genesis, do you realize the whole book of Genesis will have be, been read in this room? That's a pretty, that's a pretty great thing. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, just, that's excellent. Um, so I, I'm glad that we push through even the hard passages and the hard stories. Thanks, Nick. Well, as we start this morning, what makes the stories of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien that you probably know so well, what makes their stories so endearing and so lasting uh, when you read them? And why do they still stick around 40, 50, 60 years after they've been written? I think, you know, when we read those stories, Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings or others like that, we realize we're reading a story on two planes, two different planes. On the one hand, you're reading about the four Pevensey children, that's from Narnia, and their escapades, their battles as they claim the four thrones of Narnia. But on the other plane, there's something going on there. It's enchanted, almost otherworldly, a cosmic, spiritual plane that coincides with truth in our real world. We imagine in, in those books and when we read and we see real-world struggle of good and evil in the interpersonal conflict and the world stage battles that take place in those books. We imagine and we see the human heart displayed in all its potential for evil in those books or, or good through redemption. We imagine and see sacrificial love that stirs our hearts to understand that greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. We imagine and see Christ figures and redemption stories and forgiveness and conviction and courage and truth and beauty that all reinforce as we read those kind of stories what we wish our world looked like or what we know deep in our hearts it's supposed to look like. And when we read the Old Testament stories too, like we just heard read, We read them on two planes as well, or at least we should, because Christ did. On the one hand, we have one plane, we have the historical telling of Abram, a man who displayed incredible faith, yet had faith failures we've been talking about, and false starts as well. We see him begin so well with leaving his homeland to go to a new land that God would show him, but then we see him shrivel and shrink and retreat from faithful obedience as he schemed in Egypt. But then last week, we saw him live open-handed and generous as he gave away the best of the land that he promised to his nephew, that he'd been promised, Abram, 
He gave it away to Lot, his nephew. It's a real-life drama and conflict on one plane. But on another plane, we know that big, supernatural promises have been made to Abram. Promises so big that they must have a Christ-seeking fulfillment. Jesus said this in the Gospel of John about the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. For if you believe Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote about me, Jesus said. Jesus reads the Scripture on these two planes. So in our reading of Abraham, yes, we read of Abram on one plane. We learn from his life and his faith and his successes and failures. But we also learn about God through Abram's life. And Jesus in particular, as he says in the Gospel of John. So let's start this morning just briefly for a few minutes by remembering this, that Abram points us to Jesus, as all the Bible does. We want to read our Bible as Jesus read his. Jesus knows, as we just read in that John 5 passage, Jesus knew that Moses, when he wrote the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, he was writing about Jesus on some plane in these stories, not on the most obvious one maybe, preparing us for Jesus, showing God's people their need for Jesus. So let's look for a moment. Here's the first way we see that. The unfolding of the gospel plan has roots in the promises to Abram and his true seed, Jesus. Hopefully you got your outline there and your scripture open. As we keep going today, we'll fill in some points for those of you that like to write notes and fill in things for all different kinds of learning styles we have in this room. But our first way to remember this, that Abram points us to Jesus, is that the unfolding of these gospel plans, they started back in the Old Testament. In Abram's seed and his true seed, Christ. Think about plants or flowers, like any plant or flower or or shrub or tree that's planted. It's revealed, it started in a tiny seed form that over time puts down roots and then grows and shoots forth and and blossoms. So the gospel of Jesus Christ then, Jesus himself actually, is patterned and, and promised and present in the Old Testament in seed form. And he springs forth in colorful beauty in the New Testament. I mean, we think about it, with promises this grand that God gave to Genesis or Moses in Genesis 12, in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families will be blessed. We have to know that Abram did not live to see that. He did not live to see that. He hoped in it. He believed in it. And Christ became that blessing to all families of the earth that would come from Abram's seed. And Paul in Galatians wants us to be sure about this. We've gone to this verse a couple times. We'll keep going back to it in this series. Now, the promises, they were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. But he does not say, and to seeds, and as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, Abram, that is Christ. These promises are so sweeping and grand that while your children will be many, Abram, the promises will come to, or rather through, one. That's Jesus, your seed, Abram, Christ. Do you see? We must read Moses' writings through a gospel lens. Christ did it himself. He, we have to. 
In fact, Moses did it. Hebrews 11.26 tells us that the Lord who motivated Moses was Christ. In some mysterious way, in some mysterious way, Christ motivated Moses in his stories that he wrote. So we look for Christ in Abram's life and in Abraham himself. Why? Because Abram is a type of Jesus. It's our second point there today. He's a type of Jesus by pointing us to Jesus. A type is an object, a a symbol, a person, a picture that points to or foreshadows, you might say that word, a greater thing to come, a foreshadow, a symbol. Think of the lamb sacrificed at Passover was a type of Christ who was to come. Christ, our Passover lamb, Paul calls him. You know, one of the clearest examples we're going to get to in a few weeks from Abraham's life is the sacrifice of Isaac. From Genesis 22-2, he said, Now, take now your son, your only son. Does that ring a bell? (laughs) Your only son? Whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. As Jesus was the truly only son that God provided and sacrificed, Abraham and, in this point, Isaac, they point us forward as types of Jesus. But even in our story today, in these strange names and lands and armies and battles, it'll point to Jesus as well. So now, as we kind of do this little preview, for a third time now, The land promised to Abraham is threatened. This time it's by international war. And rather than rebel against God or forsake his calling to bless the nations, to bless all people of the earth, Abram responds with heroic trust, refusing to use brute power to achieve God's purposes. Today we're going to look at a heroic rescue and a reward and how Abram points us to Jesus in both cases. So let's start with the heroic rescue and reward today. Let's start there as we begin this strange story, really fantastic, action-packed story, as you heard Nick read it today. We love a good heroic rescue story, don't we? We love those kind of stories, whether true or fictional. You know, from time to time, in the news, it pops up. We hear about these special ops groups in the military armed services. These special ops groups that kind of go in. Nobody knows it's happening, and afterwards you hear about it. They go in. They rescue some American on foreign soil. It happens from time to time, and you hear about it. And we hear those stories, and it like excites us. Yes, what a great story. What a great rescue. Or the heroic battles of the movies we love, the classic being Braveheart where William Wallace and his men were constantly outmatched, yet they pulled victory from the jaws of death as you watch the movie. We love it. Heroic rescue stories where the underdog is victorious. Well, today in our story, we have both. We have a special ops rescue and an absolutely unexpected victory. And that's what Moses wants us to see as he wrote this book. That's what he wants you and I to see today. Here's our first uh, point, an international conflict. He wants you to see how big this is. 
and the opportunity it brings for Abram to trust again and live generously, open-palmed, we've called it, in this series. Moses wants us to see this big, gigantic, massive international conflict that's brewing because then it really lets us know what Abram accomplished. He's got another opportunity as the land now is full of battling armies. He's got another opportunity to trust, to live by faith, the faith we've been talking about week after week. Remember, not just mental assent, not just, oh, I believe that, I trust that, I've got faith in that. No, but believing God at his bare word and responding in obedience, even if it's risky. That's the type of faith we're talking about. Not just, yeah, I believe that. No, no, no. I believe it so deeply, I will act and live upon it, according to it. You might. So now we've got this major international conflict going on. And there are so many names, as you heard Nick read it, so many geographical places mentioned. I know it's confusing. So for our intent and purposes, we're not going to explain every detail, but just enough for us to know that again here, the promised land was being threatened by a large-scale tribal war. That's what's most important for us. Moses wants to build this picture for us of a seemingly absolutely impossible foe that not only captures Lot, but subdues the entire Transjordan area. That's what happens here. They plunder it. They pillage it. They destroy it and its people, the Canaanites in the land giving Abram now this huge obstacle, another obstacle, but also an opportunity to trust God and live with that open-palm generosity we've been talking about. Well, Lot's nephew, Abram, I remember first when he moved away, I remember he was living next to Sodom. Now the text tells us he's not just living next to, he's in it. He's in Sodom. He's in the city now. He'd pursued that prosperity for his family when he was given the choice, not knowing that he was walking his family right into the mouth of danger, out of selfishness. And Abram now lived maybe 30 miles or so west of Sodom, across the Dead Sea, living by the Oaks of Mamre, we read. So here's what we need to know about these kings. We've got a slide popping up here, just to help us out a little bit, to make it as clear as possible. There were five tribal called the Dead Sea Kings because they lived all around the Dead Sea. There were these five tribal kings. They were Canaanite kings that lived near the Dead Sea. They're in the promised land, these kings. I'm not going to say all their names again. Nick, you did so good at that. No reason to. Um, but they're all there. You see them on the left side of that slide. Now, on the right side, you see these four other kings. Now, the kings on the left, the tribal Dead Sea Kings in the promised land, had been paying a tribute to Keterleomer and these four kings of the east for about 12 years. It means they were like paying taxes to them uh, for protection, uh, as, as a permission to live in the land. But in year 13, these guys decide, you know what, enough's enough. We keep paying this, t- this tithe, we keep paying this tribute, and they stop paying. But in the 14th year, these four kings on the east, coming out of the east here, which was Iran, Iraq, Turkey, that area, they come up with a twofold plan. Not only will they pass through the surrounding areas and defeat a multitude of tribal groups that you heard mentioned in the text, 
But then after they do that, they'll go and take out these five kings by the Dead Sea. And verses 1 through 12 basically describe this big brewing battle for us. East versus west, you could say. Where these guys that are paying tribute, they stop paying and they come to get their dues. These four eastern kings and these armies defeated these people, even some that were considered giants. I mean, actually giants, the Rephaim, a giant people. Then it says the Zuzim and the Emim and the Horites and the Malachites and the Amorites. That's before, ever before going after these five kings. Keterleomer and his crew just take over the area, demolish it. This was an impressive conquest is what Moses wants us to see. But then they go after these five kings in the valley of Sidon, which ends this way. If you've got your text, look at verse 10 through 12 with me. Now in the valley of Sidon was, a, was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. They lost. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, not next to it, there it is, in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. The five kings, they were no match for Ketoleomer and his crew. Then Sodom and Gomorrah, you hear in the story, they fled and some of the warriors even died by falling into black, oozing tar pits, the bitumen pits, it says. Here's what that means. You kind of read it in passing. That's a weird kind of little detail to put in there. Here's what that means. That means these armies, these armies were so fierce that rather than die by the sword of Keterleomer, they chose a different death and drowned in tar pits. That's what that means. They chose one type of death over another. I think for a contemporary example of this, I thought this week, think of those now back to that horrific day, 9-11, who chose to jump off the Twin Towers rather than face the flames. That's what Moses wants us to see here. These armies were so fierce they would choose to die by drowning in tar pits rather than face the sword or capture of Ketelimer. These are the people Abram was up against. That's the point for us. This international conflict. That's why Moses makes such an effort to list these armies, these battles, to, to, to record this for us. He wants us to see that Abram's feet, what comes next in the story, is absolutely impossible. It's impossible. It's otherworldly. It shouldn't have happened unless God does it. Unless God does it. And Lot's captured in the battle, we see. And the irony here is that Lot because of his greedy choice to choose the best land for himself, he probably ended up witnessing the horrible death of maybe some of his family members and pillaging. Maybe he lost some family members. Maybe he lost a daughter to Keterlamer. And he's now captured. And we're supposed to see here for Lot, it's a picture of sheer hopelessness. Absolutely hopeless. But as we said last week, conflict is an opportunity to trust, an opportunity to act, an opportunity to initiate. That's what conflict is, and this is what Abram does. So let's look at Abram's pursuit. He pursues his lost family and begins to exercise a kingly faith, we're going to call it, in this daring rescue. The text says as the survivors flee, 
Many of them run off into the hills to hide. But one, one makes it to Abram's camp. Maybe he walked in or hobbled in, nursing a wound, bleeding, holding himself, just barely escaped the battle. Maybe on his last legs, he stumbles into Abram's camp. And the story is relayed to Abram. Let me tell you what happened, Abram. Let me tell you the devastation and, and what happened to Lot, your nephew. And the transformation we see at this point in the story of Abram is miraculous. It's fantastic. It's kingly, we said, a kingly faith. It's warrior-like, however you want to describe it. Ian Duguid is his name. He was one of my former seminary professors. He described Abram in this moment this way. He said, in this moment, when Abram hears about the capture and Lot, the veil is lifted for a moment, he said. And we see Abram in his true colors, acting as the king of the land that is his by right and that will be inherited by his offspring. This is Abram's mount of transfiguration, he called it. That's when Jesus was gloriously transformed, when his glory is clearly if brightly revealed to those closest to him. Think about this for a moment. Remember the promises to Abram, this, is, this will be your land. This land is full now of enemies who've routed the local tribes and destroyed those five rebellious kings. You know, in Lot, it serves him right. He went off and lived in the wicked land of Sodom. What seems the logical choice for Abram here? Yeah, Lot's on his own. I can't risk my life in this. The promises have been given to me. If I die, what happens? The promises, the land's been given to me. Better for me, you know, if they all fight it out on their own and clear out the land for me, I'm staying out of this. And we wouldn't have been surprised to see Abram respond that way. We might even say, be justified. It'd be easy way out, and who would blame him? But no, he rises up in defense of his family. Look at verse 14 with me. When Abram heard this, that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. It literally says there, he unsheathed 318 men, like swords. He got them ready for battle. Like a great warrior, he risks it all for the life of a family member. He's transformed in this moment, this shining, glorious moment for Abram. And he shows a courage and a bravery. And I'm sure he was scared. I'm sure there was nerves. And yet, what did he do? He initiated. He moved forward. He pursued, even knowing he could lose his life. You know, I believe as Christians that we are coming to a time in our life, our state, our nation, when we are going to have to be more resilient. I believe that. I would not be an honest leader if I stood up here and said, yeah, things are copacetic. They're the way they've always been. That's not true. It's just not true. I'd be, you know, shirking my responsibility. We're going to have to be more resilient. We're going to have to be okay facing more opposition. We're going to have to build up our faith muscles more and more. 
so that we too can choose courage, faithful obedience over cowardice or faith falters, false starts that we've seen some in Abram. Not to say we're going to charge into a real physical battle like Abram or William Wallace, probably not, but we do fight a real spiritual battle. We have to be cognizant of that. We have to be mindful of that. A real spiritual battle. And I do not want us, and I can't even as our pastor and our elders and our leaders have Bethany Church to be found in those moments on the sidelines. We're sitting the battle out like Abraham could have chose to. Or jumping into the tar pits and retreat. That's not what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to live boldly, courageously, yet humbly, serving him, standing on the front lines of that spiritual battle. So how do you get the courage to speak the truth when our culture is a culture of lies? How do you get the, the courage to witness to your neighbor about Jesus when you may be ridiculed or a coworker? How do you, do you exercise kingly faith like Abram and, and take territory for the kingdom through loving service and sacrifice? Well, we look from Abram to Jesus. We look from Abram to Jesus, who is our kinsman redeemer, our surprise savior, our rescuer. As Abram went for Lot, as Abram risks all, and he leaves the comfort of his home to pursue one member of his family, and probably multiple in, in Lot's extended family, but really one member of his family. So Jesus left the comfort of his heavenly home as the divine warrior, the kinsman redeemer, the snake crusher, the surprise savior to pursue and rescue us. The kingly faith Lot exer- or Abram exercised to save Lot was just a fraction of what Jesus did to redeem you, to rescue humanity, to come after us and save us. He could have sat on his throne, the throne of heaven, and said, you know what? They deserve what they got. Let them all battle it out and clear the land for me. But he didn't. He loves his brothers and sisters too much to do that. And he loves his heavenly father too much to do that. And he trusts his heavenly father implicitly in the promises the father made to the son. A kinsman redeemer he would be for us. A kinsman redeemer is in the Old Testament world, the world of the Old Testament, one who would buy back, purchase back, redeem a family member who is without the means to save themselves. Think Boaz and Ruth. Remember, we went through the book of Ruth here. He was her kinsman redeemer. Think Abram and Lot here. But think Jesus and us here too. This is Jesus and us. Hebrews 2 says it pretty clear. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason, he's not ashamed, that's Jesus, to call them brethren, brothers and sisters. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise also partook the same, that's Jesus in the flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that's the devil, and might free those through, who through fear of death 
were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus partakes of the same nature as us. Flesh and blood, the writer of Hebrews says. And defeats the great enemies of death and the devil. And he frees us from our captivity. We'd been in all our lives, and you know what? We didn't even realize we were in captivity. Spiritually dead. Slaves to sin and death. And he frees us. Does that sound like anyone? It's Abram. It's Abram coming in to save. Jesus comes in to give us the greater salvation. And how had Abram done this? How did he get the courage? How can we get the courage? He so believed the promises of God that even if he lost the battle, he knew he would ultimately still win. He's got this soul-exploding trust, soul-expanding, heart-expanding trust as he rescues Lot. And so too for you and I. The victory is ours. The resurrection proves it. There's no chance we'll lose the battle. (laughs) No chance. I mean, we may lose some skirmishes along the way. The church in the West is is changing and facing crises in unique ways. We may lose some skirmishes, but the battle is ours. Like our brother Jesus then, let's move out in faith and take back some of those strongholds of the enemy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our call. That's our mission. Abraham moved forward. Christ moved forward. So must we. With the victory, though, for Abram came lots of spoils, the spoils of war, you might call them. Treasure, people, land, possibly. And we know many times, when are we most tempted in life? When we're feeling the most victorious, aren't we? We're feeling the most successful. When a great battle or victory has been won in our life, we have the greatest temptation to congratulate ourselves and forget God. Become puffed up in victory. And Abram gets here in this moment exactly what he needs in this moment to pass another test. Let's look at it for our final point today. This blessing that he gets now, after he wins the battle, after he brings Lot back, he gets a blessing that served for him as a fresh reminder to trust and not scheme like he'd done in former times in Egypt. Look at verse 17 to 21 with me. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer, which he did, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There's his tithe. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Abram has this great spiritual victory that results in a real physical victory. And he could have in pride blown it here big time. Look at this. We defeated these kings, we have overtaken them, we've won the battle. Let's celebrate. 
and keep it all for ourselves. Let's look at his dilemma here for a minute. So what we have here now is two kings approaching Abram, both viewing the victory through totally different lenses, totally different view of what had just happened. Both these kings were Gentiles, Canaanite kings. In fact, this is the first time in this story that Abram's called the Hebrew. But these two kings were Gentile, Canaanite kings, which means they were descendants of Ham, we're back from uh, Noah's sons, Ham, Ham's cursed son, Canaan. But these two kings couldn't be more different. And their motives couldn't be more different. On the one hand, you have Melchizedek and what he brings to Abram. Let's look at him. He's the mysterious king-priest who brings refreshment and blessing to sustain Abram. One of the most mysterious characters in all of the Bible is this king named Melchizedek. So mysterious, actually, next week we're going to spend a whole week on just Melchizedek and talk about him. But for our story today, we need to know a few things. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which most people believe was Jerusalem. So he's a Gentile king-priest who rules over what will become the holy city of Jerusalem. He's mentioned by David in the Psalms. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, Melchizedek, as a type, again, there's that word, a type of Christ, as a forerunner of Christ. And he's one who trusts in God. Now, Melchizedek doesn't know God as Yahweh yet, but he's an absolutely true spiritual brother of Abram in this moment. And so what does Melchizedek do as he comes out of Salem to congratulate Abram? He lays out a royal feast, bread and wine, a feast to refresh Abram and his men. And in this really tempting moment, he reminds Abram, he reminds him to focus not on the gifts, but on the gift giver. Not on the spoils of war, all the stuff he got by winning a battle, but on who actually helped him win the war and who actually gave him the gifts. The gift giver rather than the gifts. All through this blessing, he says, your victory comes from God, Abram. Remember that. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, is your champion. That's who fought on your behalf, Abram. And you and I need that reminder too. We've got to be reminded of the very same things that Abram had to be reminded of. The temptation we have too is to live in our own uh, claustrophobic kingdom of one where we forget that all the victories in life come from God. All the successes. We forget that He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Sometimes we live Monday through Sunday like functional atheists who have been talking about that phrase in this series. And then we find ourselves surprised when we buckle under the pressure of a trial. What's the one sign in your life that you need to be reminded of this? A dry prayer life. Dry communion with God. An inability to maybe thank God for what He has done. We have to be reminded of this. As Melchizedek came to Abram and reminded him, I can't stress enough for us today the critical role of memory, of remembering, And the role that remembering these truths plays in in our survival as Christians, our life as Christians, and our life is passing on the faith to our children. 
memory, remembering who God is, what He's done. And Melchizedek does that by looking back to the initial promises of God to Abram. He says, if God's the possessor of heaven and earth, which he is, Abram, can't he give you this piece of land? If he possesses it all, can't he give you this tiny postage stamp here? And isn't this the ground of our faith? That in Christ, we have a king priest who is all we need. We have him. But I'm not sure we can all say that. Are you prepared, as Abram was, to give away the spoils of war if Christ asks you to? The stuff, the material things of life, the victories in your life. Abram was asked to by the king of Salem. But he gets tested by the king of Sodom. And here's what we see there. The refusal that Abram has to deal for the spoils of war in exchange for the promises of God. Again, Abram's tested. He's won this battle. He could have tried to fast-track the promises of God by making his name great, keeping everything he'd got in the battle, taking the land and holding on to the spoils of war. In fact, he was entitled to it. He was the victor. And Bera, this king of Sodom, comes and offers him a deal. Let's make a deal, Abram. Let's make a deal. Basically said, you give me the people, you take the property. There it is, the land. Give me the people, you can have all the land. And as I said, Abram was entitled to it as the victor. Isn't it so easy, just like it could have been for Abram, to confuse the material blessings of this world as the true blessings of God? the stuff of life, the spoils of war. And that's where the health and wealth gospel gets it so wrong, that that is the ultimate blessing, the stuff we have in this life, the material stuff that will all rust and burn and fade away, that's the ultimate salvation? No. You were never guaranteed these things. I was never guaranteed those things. That's not the ultimate blessing. They're good things in and of themselves, but having them doesn't mean you've won the ultimate battle. You can't look at life and say, because I have A, B, and C, therefore I am blessed. And it also means that the material world is not the best way to go about fighting a spiritual battle. We won't win a culture through courts, through candidates, or through our bank accounts, our stuff. We win by trusting the promises of God and acting upon them. That's what Abram does here. He's got all the spoils of war. He's got all the stuff he could ever need. He even gets the deal. Ah, give me the people. Keep the land, Abram. It's all about the stuff, Abram. But look what Abram does. Look what he does. He trusts the promises of God rather than the stuff. He had it all. Here's his words from this passage. I've lifted my hand to the Lord. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not even take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. See, me, king of Sodom, I did that for him. 
I'll take nothing, Abram said, but what the young men have eaten, which was priority in their bellies, right? I was going to give that back. And the share of men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. King of Sodom, I refuse. King of Sodom, I trust God. I've lifted my hand to him. King of Sodom, God is king. It was ultimately not just about the land. He had it right there. I've got it. I can keep it. I can make this deal. No, it was ultimately about the seed in the land, the seed that would become Christ. That's the victory that Abram was waiting and hoping for and trusting in. It's never just the land. It was the people and the seed and Christ that would come from that land. So he doesn't make a deal. He was waiting and hoping for that greater blessing. And so too was Jesus. We've talked about his temptation last week, I think, too, but his temptation of Christ in the wilderness fits here so well. Jesus was tempted to shortcut the blessing by Satan at that temptation. And you know what? He vowed to something similar. Be gone, Satan. Be gone. God is king, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Be gone, Satan. Believe the words of God. Take him at his bare word. And you too will live with a big heart, big trust, big obedience, and those open-handed palms of generosity like Abram did. Let's pray. What a story, God. Seeing this man, Abram, live out this life of faith. we, We read it in our call to worship, Lord. Those words that even though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. I don't know how to do that, if I'm honest. I think about the reality of those words. If an army was to encamp against us, how would we not fear? And then we see it's possible in the life of Abram. We see it's possible in the life of you, Jesus, our Lord, to go up against insurmountable odds and by faith and trust and obedience be victorious. Lord, I want that so bad for us, for myself, for Bethany Church, for your church in Canby, for your church around the world. So let us today, Jesus, be reminded the victory is yours. That we can live day to day by faith, trusting that even if we lost the land, even if we lost the spoils of war, even if we lose our life for you, the ultimate battle's been won. In Christ's name, amen.